Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 22, Exodus chapters 21 and 22. Well, last week, I guess maybe the week before, a lot of you walked out with headaches and puzzled looks as we started our study of the law, all right, with this extensive expose on simply the first verse of Exodus 21. All right, now you'll be relieved to know that this week it's not going to be nearly so intense. All right, uh, however, it is my hope that you gain some understanding of why Hebrews have, since Moses, sought so diligently to follow God's instructions to them and that we need to be very careful how we walk about characterizing his rules of living that God set out to man before the advent of Christ. Now we saw last week that what Hebrews and Christians alike term the law, God refers to as his mishpat. And mishpat in no way means law, it means justice. Further, we saw that mishpat, when referring to God's mishpat, is speaking of his overall system of justice. And today, we're about to begin looking at the specifics of God's justice system, God's detailed standard of right, and of course, therefore, wrong. Individual rules and regulations that were set down in the Mosaic Covenant. Now, to put an even finer point on it, what we're going, what we're getting ready to study is the development of the gospel. Quite literally, we're about to study the gospel, Act One. Now, let's quickly review a few things from last week. Man's righteousness and God's righteousness, our Sedek in Hebrew, and his Sedek are not the same. Actually, that shouldn't be terribly difficult to swallow because God's not a man. Man can't develop or work to achieve the type of righteousness that God has. God's righteousness, even if we're not really able to completely grasp everything that it entails, is primarily about the salvation of mankind. Now, God's righteousness, his sedek, refers to his saving will, his saving purposes and goals, and everything that happens at his direction to create a people set apart for himself. Now, second of all, accordingly, man is the object of God's saving will. God's righteousness. Man's righteousness is achieved when a human being has accepted God's saving will. His plan, Jehovah's saving plan for his, for your own life, my own life. Since the coming of Christ, a righteous man is one who is a believer in the Christ. Now the gospel is generally defined as the revealed word of God's plan of salvation for all mankind. and That is, the gospel is simply the name or it's a title that we've given to this body of information in the Bible that makes known God's incredible plan of salvation for us. And it also tells us about our need for it. Fourth, over the centuries... The term gospel has been so narrowed down by many theologians and the institutional church as to to make the term simply refer to the story and purpose of Christ, of his birth and his life, his death, his resurrection, and really nothing else. That's completely wrong and it's not scriptural. Christ certainly is the center point, the focus, the cornerstone of God's plan of salvation. But as we saw last time, the first 
awareness of the plan of salvation by a man was as it was given to Abraham. All right. And much had to happen in the salvation process before Yeshua came. And much has to happen in the salvation process before he comes again. And all of it, not just the New Testament part, forms the gospel. In reality, the Old Testament is where the gospel is found. The New Testament simply identifies who the Messiah is. All right. And it gives us some teaching on what this now means for us that he has come. We need to um, remember that Jesus and all the apostles taught the gospel using only the Old Testament. Because there was no such thing as a New Testament until decades after all of their deaths. Okay. And finally, fifth, remember... As we look into the laws of the covenant of Moses, let's always recall that the Israelites intended with fierce dedication to be obedient to God's instructions and principles. The Hebrews had at that time no articulated sense of an afterlife or of a, or of living this eternal life with God. In fact, they pretty much thought that life ended at the grave. Sheol. Right? And that death permanently separated a man from the Almighty. Right? So in their minds, their physical lives were their only opportunity to show their gratitude to Jehovah for his grace towards them by making them a member of his set-apart people. The Hebrews may not have fully grasped what true salvation is or what the full purpose of the law even was. But for Christians today to accuse Hebrews of legalism for simply doing what God commanded is nonsense. We as Christians have forgotten that in addition to our saving relationship with Jehovah, we also have the duty to be obedient. Okay. Though obedience is not a condition of attaining or keeping our salvation per se, nor should obedience ever take our focus off of our relationship with God, it absolutely must be our response. Okay? Obedience to God's system of justice is not legalism unless we misuse it as a system of self-justification. Let's read Exodus chapter 21 together. Exodus chapter 21. We're going to read it all the way through. These are the rulings, these are the mishpat that you are to present to them. If you purchase a Hebrew slave, he's to work six years, but in the seventh he's to be given his freedom without having to pay anything. If he came single, he's to leave single. If he was married when he came, his wife's to go with him when he leaves. But if his master gave him a wife and she bore him sons and daughters, then the wife and her children will belong to her master. He will leave by himself. Nevertheless, if that same slave declares, oh, I love my master, my wife and my children, so I don't want to go free, then his master is to bring him before God. And there at the door or doorpost, his master is to pierce his ear with an awl, and the man will be his slave for life. If a man sells his daughter as a slave, she is not to go free like the men slaves. If her master married her, but decides she no longer pleases him, then he is to allow her to be redeemed. Okay? He is not allowed to sell her to a foreign people because he has treated her unfairly. If he has her marry his son, then he is to treat her like a daughter. If he marries another wife, he's not to reduce her food, clothing, or marital rights. If he fails to provide her with these three things, she is to be given her freedom without having to pay anything. 
Whoever attacks a person and causes his death must be put to death. If it was not premeditated but an act of God, then I will designate for you a place to which he can flee. But if someone willfully kills another after deliberate planning, you're to take him even from my altar and put him to death. Whoever attacks his father or mother must be put to death. Whoever kidnaps someone must be put to death, regardless of whether he has already sold him or the person is found still in his possession. Whoever curses his father or mother must be put to death. If two people fight and one hits the other with a stone or with his fist, then the injured party doesn't die, but is confined to his bed. And then, if he recovers enough to be able to walk around outside, even with a cane, the attacker will be free of liability except to compensate him for his loss of time and to take responsibility for his care until his recovery is complete. If a person beats his male or female slave with a stick so severely that he dies, he's to be punished. Except that if the slave lives for a day or two, he's not to be punished since the slave is his property. If people are fighting with each other and happen to hurt a pregnant woman so badly that her unborn child dies, then even if no other harm follows, he must be fined. He must pay the amount set by the woman's husband and confirmed by judges. But if any harm follows, then you are to give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. If a person hits his male or female slave's eye and destroys it, he must let him go free in compensation for his eye. If he knocks out his male or female slave's tooth, he must let him go free in compensation for his tooth. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox is to be stoned and his flesh not eaten, but the owner of the ox will have no further liability. However, if the ox was in the habit of goring in the past, and the owner was warned, but he didn't confine it so that it ended up killing a man or a woman, then the ox is to be stoned and its owner, too, is to be put to death. However, a ransom may be imposed on him, and the death penalty will be commuted if he pays the amount imposed. If the ox gores a son or a daughter, same rule applies. If the ox gores a male or female slave, its owner must give the master 12 ounces of silver and the ox is to be stoned to death. If someone removes the cover from a cistern or digs one and fails to cover it and an ox or a donkey falls in, the owner of that cistern must make good the loss by compensating the animal's owner, but the dead animal will become his. If one person's ox hurts another's so that it dies. They are to sell the live ox and divide the revenue from the sale. And they are also to divide the dead animal. But if it's known that the ox was in the habit of goring in the past and the owner didn't confine it, he must pay ox for ox. But the dead animal will be his. If someone steals an ox or a sheep or, and he slaughters or sells it, he is to pay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. What we have just read here is Yehofe's new ordering of the Hebrew society. But we need to recognize, and it will become obvious as we move through Exodus and then Leviticus, that while there are many rules and ordinances contained within these passages, this is hardly a fully comprehensive legal code, such as the Code of Hammurabi. Okay. In other words, not every area of life is covered in detail by all these ordinances. Marriage, commerce, inheritance, and how property is transferred is either only barely touched or not mentioned directly at all. Rather, most of these so-called laws were examples that tended to amend previous practices of the Hebrews, or they were new concepts altogether. No matter their purpose, 
And here's the key. They were always extensions of the first ten laws that we call the Ten Commandments. Always. Therefore, Israel's leaders necessarily devised practices and rules that both covered areas that the law didn't address or it filled in gaps of very broad principles that were laid down. These practices and rules were called oral tradition or oral law or later just tradition. And while this chapter begins with a practice that we find aberrant in our nation, it was obviously permitted in ancient days. Slavery. Now, one human owning another is certainly not God's ideal. Yet for his own reasons, Jehovah has permitted slavery to exist, and here he sets out its boundaries. Now, as we go through the next three chapters, there will be many biblical practices that we'll encounter that seem primitive, harsh, barbarian, or just plain unfair to our minds. And, and while we might have occasion to discuss some of these individual laws, what I intend to do is to look at these rules and regulations more from a standpoint of the God principles they embody. Because as believers, it's not necessarily our duty to follow Hebrew cultural traditions and rituals that were developed by sages and rabbis over the centuries, but it is our duty to follow the principles behind those traditions and rituals and to obey plainly written Torah commands that are timeless. Let's begin by noting that using the ten words, the ten commandments as the foundation, the first group of laws as given to Israel are contained in Exodus 21, 22, 23. And they are divided into two fundamental categories. First, the civil and social position of all Israelites as they relate to one another, that is, human-to-human interaction. And second, Israel's position as they are to relate to God. So category one uh, we'll, we'll, well, we'll be looking at both categories. All right. And so much of this again, we has to always categorize as doing justice. All right. In Hebrew, doing mishpat. And what we should take immediate notice of is that God has just turned the common world social ladder of that time upside down. Unlike any civil and social system ever devised up to that point by man, the one given to Israel by Jehovah begins with its concern for dealing fairly with those who are the lowest on the social scale, slaves. God lays down rights for slaves. Male and female, doesn't matter. Slaves are people who are totally dependent on the mercy of their masters. Slaves were but property in the ancient world. Tools, beasts of burden. And still like that in many places on the earth today. But by ordaining sacred personal rights upon even this lowest social class, God changed the very dynamic by which slavery could even exist. Hebrew slaves were given the position of being people. Not animals, not possessions. Okay. Underline the word, though, Hebrew, because that's the key. We have to understand that Hebrews held two classes of slaves. Hebrews and Gentiles. Hebrews and foreigners. Okay. These rules that we're talking about today are made for Hebrew slaves. They do not apply to foreign slaves that Hebrews might own. Okay. However, later on in the Torah, instructions will be issued by Jehovah that foreign slaves who wish to give up their Gentile tribal or 
national identity and become Israelites should be allowed to do so. Okay. The act of changing loyalties, however, didn't set them free. It wasn't a get-out-of-jail-free card. But it did make them a Hebrew slave. And so it then gave them this Bill of Rights, if you would, that we just read here. Okay. Even more, Yehovah makes it clear that any foreigner who joins Israel and becomes a Hebrew by choice is not to be considered a second-class citizen. Therefore, if a foreign slave owned by a Hebrew, declares his desire to join Israel, and he goes on to become a Hebrew, he also becomes equal in status and rights to a natural-born Hebrew slave. Right. Once that naturalized slave becomes a free man, he's a Hebrew free man, All right, with rights and status equal to natural-born Hebrew free man. By the way, Notice Exodus 21.6. This is where the male slave gets his ear pierced. Although it doesn't say so, he then has a kind of ring inserted into it. This is an indication that this man, as head of his family, has voluntarily committed himself and his family to lifelong servitude to his master. Okay, The master of this slave family is not obligated to free them after six years, which was the Hebrew law. Although by mercy, a master could free a slave whenever he chose. Now, verses 7 through 11 deals with what happens when a man sells his daughter as a house servant. Right? But with the idea inherent in it, right? that if she pleases her master, he'll marry her. She is not to be considered among the slave class, even during her time as a handmaiden. The first thing we should note is this must have been a pretty common occurrence to be so directly and specifically addressed by God. Okay, I mean, this wasn't hypothetical. Okay, now, the girl could well become a concubine of her master. That is, she is not a wife, but she holds a, a similar status. The main difference is that there would not have been a ketubah, okay, a, a marriage contract drawn up. So therefore, there was no legal betrothal. Right? A Hebrew would not sell his own wife, but he would sell a handmaid and on occasion a concubine. But Jehovah says that under no circumstances may the master sell this woman to anyone outside the tribes of Israel. Okay. And if he chooses to make her a concubine or a wife, regardless of the fact that he had quite literally acquired her through purchase, he can't treat her poorly should he marry another woman. Of course, we're talking about polygamy here. Okay. His penalty for wronging this woman, should he do so, is that she gains her freedom. Now, while it may not seem so to us in this cultural setting, what is really happening here is that Yehovah is making clear within the paternalistic society of Israel, typical of the ancient world, that women have rights, they have value to God, they're to be treated fairly, and with consideration among his set-apart people. Now, the next thing to be addressed after slaves and women's rights is the sanctity of life. Life is so important to God that he lists the crimes of man against man for which God orders the destruction of the offender in order that the criminal might not harm another innocent person or degrade Israel's, Israeli society in general. Okay. Part of this list of capital crimes we might expect, but other parts are a little bit of a surprise. Yehovah sets on the same level of seriousness premeditated murder, attacking and harming, but not necessarily killing your parents, Kidnapping, whether the victim's harmed or not. 
Even cursing your parents, that's all on the same level. That is, in his holy eyes, every one of these things I've just mentioned deserve the death penalty. God offers no mercy for these perpetrators. He offers no possibility of rehabilitation. This is punishment. Pure, swift, non-retractable. Now, just so we understand what's meant by cursing your parents, there are several words used for curse or cursing in Hebrew. And they are quite specific in their meaning and and, and they range from meaning swearing an oath against someone to being menacing or being threatening. The word used for curse in the instance of Exodus 21.17 is kalal. And it is used in the sense of a son insulting or of being an embarrassment to his parents because he's of no account. This would include not only performing the sonly duty of caring for his parents if they needed his help, because a son who humiliates his parents by his behavior or shows his parents disrespect or is simply a deadbeat or a bum, Yehovah says put him to death. I mean, wow. And, and, and yet, God sees all this as actually guarding life. Because the people who do these things steal life from those who Jehovah sees as innocent and upright. Well, we also see the principle of intention validated by God. That is, the intention of one's Heart has everything to do with the consequences of his actions in God's eyes. Let me remind you one more time. Whenever the Bible says heart, think what? Mind. Because in the biblical days, the heart they thought was the seat of the intellect, not the seat of emotion. For instance, if someone unintentionally kills another person, then that perpetrator is given a place to go. And no one's allowed to violate that place to apprehend him and kill him in return. This was the principle of sanctuary, or that's why they set up these cities of refuge in the Promised Land. But premeditated murder, the intention to kill, offers no sanctuary. And the perpetrator can even be arrested in the holiest of places. Even if he's in the midst of sacrificing at the altar of God, they can grab him, take him, and kill him. Right there on the spot. Now these last few verses, and a couple of the following, answered the question that was raised back when we studied the sixth word, the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And the question was, so what's unjust killing versus Justifiable killing. Well, next in verses 18 through 27, ordinances are set down to deal with protection of life. Dealing first with bodily harm to man, then dealing with harming animals. And this this all reinforces this love and concern that God has for all of his living creatures. And so when one of his animals and their innocence, all of their innocence... has to be sacrificed to atone for a transgression committed by a man against God. It grieves our Lord for this animal to die. All those millions upon millions of sacrificial animals that would follow century after century were no small thing for Yehovah. Each and every one of those sacrificed animal lives mattered a great deal to him. Now, what I hope you've noticed is that another key principle God is showing us in these verses is the principle of compensation or recompense. That is, each offense is to have a fair and equal compensation 
as the consequence. See, God views compensation as better than incarceration for the offender. Compensation from the perpetrator makes some progress towards making his victim whole. It even allows the offender to go on with their life while being taught a very valuable lesson. Okay? Imprisonment simply punishes the offender. And the victim's only satisfaction is knowing that the perpetrator is being punished. Okay? Notice how in verse 18 it talks about if two men get into a fight and one seriously injures the other, then the one who did the harm is obligated to care for the other and to bear all of his expenses and make up any of his lost wages. But there's no further obligation because the fight was a mutual attempt to harm one another in the first place. In our modern legal system, we would call this the principle of shared liability. Okay. Notice also that verse 20 deals with the matter of a master beating his slave to death. Again, due to God's great value of life, the slave master can be punished. The dead slave's owner can actually be executed. Okay, that, that's the meaning in this instance of the term avenged. When somebody's avenged, they're being killed. Okay? But if the slave, it says, this is kind of odd, lives a couple of days before he dies, then because the slave owner, the, the logic is, because the slave owner would be simply throwing his own money down the drain by killing this paid-for slave, there is to be no punishment. The idea here is that if a slave dies immediately from the punishment the master is inflicting, then there is no doubt the master intended to kill him and did a darn good job of it. Okay, This is murder. Right. But if the master punishes a slave, he beats him, and the slave is gravely harmed as a result, but he doesn't die immediately, the idea... That's the whole point behind his not dying immediately, you know, he lives a few days rather. Okay. But then the slave dies later, then there's doubt as to the master's intent to kill. And there is even doubt as to whether the punishment the master inflicted was actually the cause, the eventual cause of his death. Therefore, the loss of the valuable slave is considered sufficient punishment in itself and no further consequences to the master are ordered. Well, next is what happens if a pregnant woman, it says, loses her unborn child as a result of her being harmed. And in verses 23 through 25, we get the statement which just about every literate person, believer or pagan, on the face of our planet likes to quote. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and so on. It's too bad people don't read the several paragraphs before and after that statement. Because if they'd have a lot better idea of what all that meant if they did. See, the God principle behind the eye for an eye formula is set forth like this. The consequences of accidental or unlawful actions still require equity and fairness. Okay. If someone knocks out somebody's tooth, then equitable compensation is to be rendered. This in no way indicates, by the way, that the offender's tooth is to be knocked out. That's not the point. Okay. Or if an eye is damaged, the offender's eye is not damaged in return, but there's to be proper compensation. We saw an example of what happens if a slave master somehow damages the eye of his slave. What happens to him? He has to set him free. as compensation. So what is happening in verses 23 to 25 is that God is saying in essence, look, it would be a never-ending law code if I took every possible way and circumstance that one person can harm another 
and give a prescribed verdict containing a precise amount of compensation. Therefore, here's the principle you're to use to decide on compensation. And of course, this principle is entire is tied to the entire context of Exodus 21, whereby God gives only a few reasons for a death sentence, and none, by the way, whereby a person is mutilated as punishment, such as gouging out their eye, this misconception of an eye for an eye principle. Again, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, bruise for a bruise concept is a fair and equitable compensation. One should get more compensation for losing a tooth than just being bruised. Even greater compensation should be paid for losing an eye than losing a tooth because the effect is greater on the victim. Too much compensation is as wrong as too little. Life for life does not necessarily mean the death penalty. It simply means a very high level of compensation, probably to be also be accompanied with some type of harsh punishment. God lists very clear, clearly the capital offenses. All other punishments for all other crimes are to revolve around fair and just compensation, recompense. Now notice the all-important context for this eye-for-an-eye principle. It has to do with the circumstance of accidental homicide, manslaughter. It speaks of two men fighting, and then this innocent bystander who happens to be a pregnant woman somehow winds up getting knocked down. First is what happens if her unborn baby dies. But then, verse 23 says, but if other damage ensues, then the principle shall be life for life, eye for eye, etc. Okay? It is key to understand that the death penalty for the taking of a human life is, according to Torah, only to be exacted when the killing is intentional. Okay? The scenario offered here is obviously unintended killing. Therefore, this absolutely is not suggesting the death penalty when it says life for life. Now, one more comment. As I mentioned that mutilation was not a permitted punishment in Torah. It was not part of the Hebrew justice system. Now, this is not to say that it didn't happen happen, or that some of the more evil and tyrannical Hebrew kings and princes didn't capriciously apply the death penalty from time to time. This stuff did happen, but it wasn't authorized by God. And it was generally seen by the common people as evil and wicked. Now, Islam loves to claim that Christians, Hebrews, Muslims all share the same God, and therefore Islam is simply scrupulously following Allah's instructions when they mutilate the offenders of Islamic Sharia law. They cut off hands and fingers, feet. They do. They gouge out eyes. They cut out tongues. All right, and so on. This is just normal part of their law. Okay, The Bible teaches against such things, while the Koran commands it. Okay, This is just further proof that Allah is in no way just another culture's name for Yehovah. Nothing said there. Verse 26 once again deals with slaves and the price for harsh treatment of a slave, even simply knocking out a slave's tooth is immediate freedom for that slave. Verse 28 begins to deal with harm that animals might cause. And we get God's view of justice in this regard. An animal that kills a human must die. Okay? And God makes it clear here that humans are above animals in inherent worth to him. Which is apparently news to several animal rights groups. But the animal's owner is not to be blamed or punished unless that owner knew his animal had a propensity to harm humans. 
Okay. If the negligent owner's animal kills somebody, then that owner, that owner is up for the death penalty. Okay. The idea is that the owner is, is guilty of gross disregard for the lives of others, so he pays the ultimate penalty. However, there is a provision that depending on the circumstances, if the animal's negligent owner or kin pays a ransom, pays a price to the family of the person who was killed, then that can suffice as punishment. Now, the implication is not only as regards the exact circumstances of the situation, but that it is the judgment of the agreed of the aggrieved family as to whether they'll accept money or demand the life of the offender. Murder can never be allowed to pass without the execution of the murderer. However, strictly speaking, wanton negligence isn't quite the same as murder, so a loophole, rather expensive out, is added. Conversely, if someone's negligence causes the death of another's animal, then the one who causes the problem has to pay compensation. And the example given here is leaving the cover off of a water well and an animal falls in and dies. The last verse covers what happens if someone steals from another. Again, the idea is compensation. Ah, but this time not at an equitable level. Instead, compensation must happen at a punitive level. So we have intention as at work here. Stealing doesn't happen accidentally. Except perhaps in America, if you listen to some of our more liberal politicians. You know, someone who causes loss, harm, or death to another person as does so intentionally is dealt with much more harshly than if it was unintentional. Let's move on, and we're going to read Exodus 22, and we'll talk about a little bit of that tonight. We're going to make a little hay here. If a thief caught in the act of breaking in is beaten to death, it's not murder, unless it happens after sunrise, in which case it is murder. A thief must make restitution, so if he has nothing... He himself is to be sold to make good the loss from the theft. If what he stole is found alive in his possession, he is to pay double, no matter what it is, an ox, a donkey, or a sheep. If a person causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over and lets his animal loose to graze in somebody else's field, he is to make restitution from the best produce of his own field and vineyard. If a fire is started and spreads to thorns so that stacked grain and um, standing grain or, or fields destroyed, the person who lit it must make restitution. If a person entrusts a neighbor with money or goods and they are stolen from the trustee's house, then if the thief is found, he must pay double. But if the thief is not found, then the trustee must state before God that he did not take that person's goods himself. In every case of dispute over ownership, whether of an ox, a donkey, a sheep, clothing, or any missing property where one person says, this is mine, both parties are to come before God, and the one whom God condemns must pay the other one double. If a person trusts a neighbor to look after a donkey, ox, sheep, or any other animal and it dies or it's injured or is driven away unseen, then the neighbor's oath before I deny that he has not taken the goods will settle the matter between them. The owner is to accept it without the neighbor making restitution. But if it was stolen from the neighbor, then he must make restitution to the owner. If it was torn to pieces by an animal, the neighbor must bring it as evidence that he doesn't need to make good the loss. If someone borrows something from his neighbor and it gets injured or dies with the owner not present, he must make restitution. If the owner was present, he need not make good the loss. If the owner hired it out, the loss is covered by the hiring fee. 
If a man seduces a virgin who is not engaged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price for her to be his wife. But if her father refuses to give her to him, he must pay a sum equivalent to the bride price for virgins. You're not to permit a female sorcerer to live. Whoever has sexual relations with an animal must be put to death. Anyone who sacrifices to any god other than Adonai alone is to be completely destroyed. Let's stop reading right there. Okay, depending on your version, by the way, the first verse of Exodus 22 is sometimes the last verse of Exodus 21, so don't worry about it. We didn't take up in the same spot. In any case, we continue here in Exodus chapter 22 with the crime of thievery. And the idea surrounding these ordinances against thievery, of course, is the protection of property. And personally, I really wish the United States would adopt the Mosaic Covenant's way of dealing with the thief. I mean, notice how it says, if you catch a thief in the act during darkness, you can legally kill him on the spot. However, in daylight, you can't. Okay. The practical reason being in the dark, you can't evaluate the overall situation very well. Okay. Whether it's one thief or more, whether or not he has a weapon, okay. whether this man may be a known murderer on the loose. Okay. But in daylight, you can tell. All right. So if you can reasonably see that you're only in danger of losing property but not being personally harmed, then God says to kill that man is murder. I mean, the part I like best, though, is this restitution aspect. That a thief has to replace what he's taken, and usually several times over. Okay? And if he refuses to do this, or he won't follow through with his promise to do it, then he can be taken into custody and sold as a slave with the money given to the person who was robbed. Now, I'm not, I say that tongue-in-cheek because I'm certainly not advocating the return of slavery here. Right? Although I suspect such a system would probably slow down to a trickle. All right, uh, Robberies and burglaries throughout uh, the Western world. Anyway, interesting, isn't it? That imprisonment, incarceration, was simply not part of Jehovah's justice system. Okay? Certainly one could understand how having a prison out in the wilderness would be a tad difficult. Right? But this concept of recompense instead of incarceration continued right on through the time of Christ. Okay? The idea of prison was, was aberrant to Jews. Okay? It was a pagan way of dealing with crime and punishment. Okay? Not that Jews didn't eventually adopt the practice to some degree. Right. But since it was not part of God's justice system, it was never widely used. Now, I think it's instructional that the use of prisons has never seemed to stem the tide of crime to any degree at all. I mean, in fact, we're all too aware that people who've already been in prison today commit most of the crimes once they get back out. I mean, even our feeble attempt to rehabilitate prisoners via schooling and knowledge during their time of imprisonment hasn't had much success. That's because it's not the way God created the universe to operate. God's system of justice was set up to rehabilitate the criminal by means of his compensating his victim. Now, it's always important in reading scripture to see the order of things, because it usually gives us God's sense of priorities. So first, as regards theft among herders, which is what these laws are mainly dealing with. You notice we're always talking about stealing an ox, a sheep, uh, uh, a donkey. Okay. We get rules then, of course, regarding the pilfering of animals. 
Next we see God's justice as concerns damage to field crops. And then the formula that animal life, of course, carries higher value to God than plant life. As of the time Israel was given these laws, where were they? Where were they when they got these laws? Out in the wilderness. Right? They're at Mount Sinai. So they weren't farmers at that time, but they were herdsmen. In time, they'd need laws concerning agriculture because once they settled in the land of Canaan, many would become farmers. Well, next in verse 6 of chapter 22 comes instruction regarding what has been given to others for safekeeping and what happens if those items go missing. Now, up to this point, you might have noticed that there has been this interesting if-then structure as Jehovah taught his law. If this happens, if someone does this, then this is what you're to do. The idea here is that these things are going to arise, and they had already arisen all right, within the body of God's set-apart people, and they're going to have to be dealt with as part of everyday ordinary life. It also sets up the dynamics of dynamic of action and consequence. If you do this, then this is what will happen. The point is, these are practical matters that are being dealt with here. The law of Moses was an expected thing for the Israelites. Every society had a code of laws. Israel fully expected to have a law code. And these law codes were really... Very similar in this era, even if they didn't agree on every point. It's a little bit kind of like in our Western society today. Europe and North America share very similar philosophies of justice. We have courts of law, legal experts as representatives for the defendants, and the view that generally a person cannot be physically harmed for an offense that only involves property. Sanctioned mutilations of criminals are not allowed. The death penalty is withheld except for the most horrific circumstances. Um, So what constituted a crime was generally the same for Israel as it was for all the other ancient Middle Eastern societies. And more often than not, the punishments were quite similar. However, Israel's law involved much more mercy and compassion And where it was the norm in other societies to do physical harm to a common thief in Israel, it was literally forbidden. Israel's law insisted on establishing that humans were more important than animals, animals more important than any other kind of property. Well, now we begin to enter some laws, and we'll only get a little way into it, that have an entirely different character than what we've just been talking about. Because beginning in verse 17 or 18, depending on your Bible version, it starts with a series of regulations stating some things that must never occur within the family of God. That is, these acts are so out of character for for one who would suppose him or herself, to be a part of God's set-apart people, that most of these laws involve the immediate destruction of that person. These are matters of the highest morality, of conscience, rather than merely crimes that are committed against a fellow man. Notice that the previous laws took circumstances and intent into consideration, right? We've been talking about whether killing was unintentional or intentional. Was it negligent? Was it an accident? All right, This all mattered. And those crimes, if you would, listed from Exodus 22, 17 to 30, except perhaps for the verses about loaning money, intent and circumstance play almost no role. You do it or don't do it, your intent doesn't matter. So in verse 17, the matter of sorcery is addressed. 
No magic of any kind is to occur among God's people. Therefore, a witch, a female sorcerer, is to be summarily exterminated when found out. Sorcery, by definition, you know, is the invoking of the names of the gods and demons, sometimes, to do your bidding. And since monotheism, the religion of Israel, recognized but one god and rejects any catering to the evil spirits, then sorcery was a most serious offense against the Lord. I mean, it was so dangerous because sorcery was virtually universal in ancient times, and so people, Israelites, were very easily drawn to it and deceived by sorcerers. I mean, that magic was outlawed altogether in Israel was known far and wide in that region. And everybody thought it was the most peculiar thing. Right? In fact, in the famous episode of Balaam and King Balak that we'll eventually look at in the book of Numbers in a few months, we're going to find this statement from Balaam when he discovers this strange prohibition against occult practices among the Hebrews, he says, Lo, there is no augury in Jacob. There's no divining in Israel. It was a big surprise to him. Okay. The next prohibition that is spoken of as we move down through Exodus 22 is against the practice of bestiality. Okay, this horrible perversion of having a human have sexual intercourse with an animal is not some fanciful fanciful product of a vivid imagination, it was widespread throughout the inhabitants of Canaan. Okay. Even the Hittites right, of that region found this practice of the Canaanites such an abomination that they have law codes against it. Okay. And, and as a matter of fact, it even demanded their death. And in verse 19... The instruction that Israel is never to worship other gods is fleshed out a little bit. All right? In that Israel is never, it says, this is interesting, to sacrifice to another god. See, sacrifice was at the heart of idolatry. Okay? So to sacrifice upon an animal upon the altar of a heathen god is here defined as deserving of complete annihilation of the one committing such an apostasy. Now, what's informative, at least it is to me, is the need that the Lord and Moses obviously seems to have to even say not to sacrifice to a pagan god after it's already been made clear that one's not to worship or even acknowledge these other gods. I mean, what's the difference between worshiping other gods and sacrificing to other gods? Nothing, unless you're looking for a reason to do what you want. The reason the issue is discussed in this way is quite simple, really. The Israelites were always looking for loopholes. They were looking to exceptions to the rule all right, against idolatry. Some Israelites would sacrifice to a pagan god and say, well, I'm not worshipping another god. I'm not worshipping another god. I'm just offering an animal sacrifice, a little, little animal sacrifice. That's not the same thing. Okay? They liked their idolatry. They wanted to keep their idolatry. Why? Because the whole rest of the world enjoyed it and they wanted to be like everybody else. The Bible is loaded with examples of Israel constantly falling back into idol worship. And you'll read in the Bible of high places, depending on your translation. You hear about these high places. Well, a high place is an altar. It's an altar up on a hill right, where they sacrificed. And we... And practically every time one of God's prophets called them on the carpet for doing this, they denied 
that what they were doing was actually idolatry until God's wrath fell upon them. Then they said, oh, I see. I mean, these Hebrews thought that they were do what, what they were doing may have been close to idolatry. It may have been right up to the line of idolatry. Hey, but their hearts were in the right place. Right? Well, God labeled it as idolatry, and He eventually killed thousands of Israelites for doing it, and He exiled the rest of them from the from the uh, holy lands. We'll continue on from here next week.